right, well, good morning again. Uh, we're continuing our new series, Miracles, Signs of Salvation. And in this series, uh, we're basically just looking at the miracles of Jesus, uh, some of the most amazing miracles that he performed in his ministry. And, you know, I don't, I don't know about you, but at least for me, I think it's hard not to be excited about this series. There's something, I don't know, very attractive and appealing about miracles, right? At the end of the day, I think most of us want to see something great, right? We all want to be amazed. Think about this. Two weeks ago, 123 million people tuned in to watch the Super Bowl. This was the most watched telecast of all time. Now, obviously, not everyone is a football fan. And to be fair, I think probably a lot of people watch because it's, it's just really fun to root against the 49ers. <laughs> Where's Abel? <laughs> But, you know, jokes aside, a good portion, right, of this 123 million people watched because they want to see greatness. The two best teams in the league going head-to-head, some of the best athletes in the world at the peak of their powers, right? Patrick Mahomes, Christian McCaffrey, Travis Kelsey, Dre Greenlaw. That's Sorry, if you weren't paying attention, that doesn't make sense. But this is what we love about sports. This is why we love Marvel movies. It's why Taylor Swift's Heiress Tour made billions of dollars. It's why we go places like Yosemite and Yellowstone, some of the most beautiful places on earth. Because deep down, I think all of us are drawn to the transcendent, right? And miracles offer us this kind of amazement. Miracles kind of literally are heaven on earth. It's God's power unleashed in ways we don't expect. And so on one hand, miracles are great because we can just look at them at face value and say, man, this is just really cool. And yet, as we continue in this series, the question that we really want to ask, the question that drives us forward, isn't just, you know, will we be amazed? Can we look at this and say, that's really cool? Instead, the question is, will we be transformed? Will these miracles point us to this greater, deeper reality about who Jesus is and what it means to pursue kingdom life? And this really is the question that Jesus invited us to with every miracle he performed. If you were here last week, Pastor Eric talked about this initial miracle in the book of John, and we saw this kind of interesting thing that John does where he never calls miracles miracles. Instead, he calls them signs. And he's showing us, he's reminding us that these miracles are meant to point us to, to represent some deeper truth about who Jesus was and what faith is all about. And so this morning we are going to talk about, we're going to look at one of the most well-known, one of the most famous miracles in the Bible, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. And even though this is a familiar story, most of you have probably heard this story before or at least heard it referenced before, uh, there's a lot here. And we don't want to miss how amazing both this miracle is, but also this deeper truth that Jesus reveals. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to uh, John 6. You can turn there in your Bible app. We'll also have it up here on the screen. Uh, And we're going to be jumping around a little bit. We're going to be looking at various parts of chapter 6 because there's a lot here. But we'll begin just with kind of this simple, powerful miracle starting in verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. 
Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming to him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's Pe- Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So at the most basic level, I think we could all understand that this is a story of provision. And it speaks to us in a language that we all understand. This is a language that we know and love, the language of food. Uh, Last month, our family was fortunate enough to go to uh, the Disney World Resort in Florida. We got to spend about a week there. And we had such an amazing time. It was filled with just all kinds of great memories and moments. And so at the end of the trip, you know, we're all sitting around, we're having dinner, and we like to do this with every vacation, right? You just talk about what our favorite moments, what our favorite parts of the trip were. And so obviously the conversation included, you know, all the really fun rides we went on, some of the shows that the kids liked, you know, the the resort and the pool and, and all the fun stuff. But for Grayson, there was one thing that really stood out. Now, this wasn't at the very top of his list, but it's kind of the thing that he's talked about most since we got back. If you talk to Gray about our trip to Disney World, chances are this came up, that he just absolutely loved the bacon. (laughs) We we went to breakfast on one of our days off, and this wasn't like a fancy breakfast. It was kind of the little, like, cafeteria at our hotel, and Gray's really picky, so we order him a side of bacon, and they just pile on this bacon, and for him, it was just the best bacon he, he's ever had. His mind was blown at just how, how perfectly crispy it was without being burnt. He's like, even the fatty parts aren't squishy. Like, Dad, how, how can we make bacon like that at home? And, you know, he had a great time. He's having fun the whole time. But I think that breakfast in the middle of our week was the moment when, like, Disney World got locked in as, like, this is a cool place, right? Like, this, they got it together. Disney World is awesome because they have great bacon. And, and I think most of us, on some level, can relate to this. You know, food speaks to us. It sticks with us in powerful ways, at least for me personally. You know, when I remember vacations, I think about the great meals and the places that I went to eat. And I think it's for this reason that the feeding of the 5,000 is probably the most accessible miracle in Scripture, right? You could tell this story to like a a three- or a four-year-old, and they would get it immediately, right? Like why this is so amazing, because we all know what it feels like to be hungry, We all know the joy of having a good meal, you know, after we've been, like, kind of waiting all day for it. We know the sense of gratitude and wonder we feel when somebody gives us good food. And so it's no mistake that this is the only miracle, other than the resurrection, that all four gospel writers 
include in their telling of Jesus' ministry. They all say, man, this is something powerful, it's simple, it's engaging in a very human way. And yet, as simple as it is, as we talked about, there, there's more to it. The story demands more from us. It's a sign that requires that we really think about what Jesus is saying. So let's kind of unpack this passage a little bit. Uh, the author of this gospel, the Apostle John, he tells us that as Jesus' ministry moves through Judea, he's begun to amass like a, a pretty good-sized following. And he points out that the appeal here isn't like some really deep theological understanding of who Jesus is. It's not like people are like, this guy is definitely the Messiah. This is the one, you know, they, they don't understand everything yet. It's not that they're like ready to sell out for the kingdom, like, oh, we want to follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. They're not even just there because Jesus has been giving out free wine at weddings. Instead, it tells us that they're there. The crowd followed Jesus because they had seen him heal the sick. And so, you know, these people are, are following him. They're interested because there's this possibility, this hope that Jesus might heal them. They want in on what he's offering. And so as this crowd gathers, Jesus realizes that there's a problem, right? Like at some point, all of these people, probably not the richest people in the area, they're, they're going to need something to eat. Now let's be really clear, right? These people probably weren't going to starve. They, at some point, you know, they could just go home. They could go home and they could eat if they got really that hungry. And so Jesus doesn't do this miracle because he has to. He doesn't even do it because they ask him to. No one's complaining here about like, hey, Jesus, where's the food? Can, can you give us something? Instead, he, said, he brings up this question. And scripture tells us that he does so because he, he has it in mind to do something. He wants to reveal something important. It's also important to note that G Jesus does this uh, during the time of Passover. And so there's some important symbolism. Jesus wants to reveal what the truth of Passover is really about. Right? So people are remembering this time when their ancestors were rescued from Egypt. Even more relevant, their time in the wilderness as God provided miraculously for them manna every day to sustain them and get them through the time of the wilderness. And so Jesus is really kind of setting something up here. Like, I want to show you something about who I am, and I want to show you something about the deep reality of what this Passover miracle was really about. And so he grabs these five barley loaves and these two small fish, gives thanks for them, and he begins to pass them out. And even though we've heard this story before, right, you, you really want to try to imagine what it would have been like to be there. How amazing this scene would have been. Right? You try to imagine this, this massive crowd. Yeah, this isn't, you know, this is maybe like 100, 120 people in this room. This much more than that. John says 5,000 men, but it's actually probably closer to 15 to 20,000 people because certainly there would have been women and children there. So I try to imagine like a sold-out crypto.com arena, right? Like that many, an arena full of basketball fans. Jesus is just walking through. He's got five loaves and two fish, and he just keeps on going and going and going. He's not pulling off like tiny morsels or giving everybody crumbs. He's not rationing things out carefully. This isn't like Chipotle, right, where it's like they give you the least amount of meat, and you look down the line, it's like, they got that much? Why don't you give me more meat? It says everyone got as much as they wanted. He's giving abundantly, and at the end of all of it, everyone is fed, and 
there's leftovers, right? There's these 12 baskets, this complete picture of enough being left over. And so on the most basic level, I think we get this idea that Jesus can provide for what we need. This is an important element of this miracle, that Jesus provides and blesses abundantly. Uh, Again, last week, Pastor Eric talked about this water-to-wine miracle. And what we saw is kind of this this revelation of of Jesus as this, this Messiah, this Savior, who is both powerful and compassionate. Jesus cares about his people. He cares that they're hungry. But he also has just this infinite creative power at his disposal to meet that need. And I, I just love that combination. And we don't want to lose sight of this in this miracle. We're going to talk about uh, some other aspects of it. But at the end of the day, we always want to get this, this just basic foundational picture of Jesus taking something so small and multiplying it. It reminds us that it's never beyond God's ability to bless us and provide for us, no matter what our situation looks like, no matter how much logic and rationality say, like, there's no way God could help me here. Uh, Jesus is always capable of providing. N.T. Wright says, part of the Christian faith is the expectation that he, Jesus, will do something we hadn't thought of, something new and creative. And that's important. You know, this isn't the main point, but we don't want to gloss over it, that this is who Jesus is. And it is correct. It is part of being faithful to ask Jesus for help. In in light of this miracle, to come before Jesus and say, Jesus, I, I just, I need you. I need you to provide for me. I need your help in this situation. And Jesus delights in providing for his people. He cares and he's powerful. But ultimately, again, we want to go deeper. There's, there's more to this story. And what's clear is that this picture of, of who Jesus is, as we continue in our passage, what's clear is how easy it would be to misunderstand this picture of provision. It would be easy to see this miracle and miss kind of the bigger picture of what Jesus wanted to reveal. And we know this because it's exactly what happens with the crowds. They see what Jesus does, and they respond in a way that's just kind of objectively missing the point. Verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is fascinating, I think. They don't, you know, they don't, just go to wonder and gratitude, like, Jesus, thank you. They're not moved to obedience and discipleship, like, Jesus, let us follow you. Instead, their immediate reaction is to pursue control, to to try to wrap up and grab this power and use it for themselves, right? Like, hey, this is the guy we've been waiting for. This is the prophet like Moses that we've been expecting. So, like, let's use him. Let's force him to get what we want. Let's force him to be king. Let's go overthrow Rome. Let's reestablish our nation. Let's take this divine power and go get ours. Forget listening to what he's saying. Forget, you know, kind of paying attention to what he wants to show us. Like, the wheels are turning. What can we do with this power? And there's this clear misguided arrogance to their belief. Like, John, the way he writes it, it's clear. This isn't good. And even Jesus' response, right, he's like, 
I'm out of here. I don't want to have anything to do with this. I'm going off on my own for a little bit. And what we see here is this danger uh, when we think about uh, miracles, but even more so just when we think about Jesus as, as being this powerful, loving God, we have to be careful because it is so easy to kind of take this picture and then turn Jesus into this kind of cosmic vending machine, right? Like into a God who can be used for our own desires and our own vision of what we need. What's easy is to want to grab at control. And we might not intend this, but it's, it's so natural for our minds to go there. Right? The, the logic is, is simple. If God has this kind of power, and if he really loves me, then he'll know what's important to me, and he'll give me what I want. Over time, this kind of turns into he should give me what I want, or he has to, or for him to be good and loving and powerful and all that he says he is, he, he has to. And we do this all the time. Sometimes we do this with small things. You know, I think about like, I've told this before, but like I, I do this all the time when I go fishing. Like I'm the worst like pastor when I'm fishing because my prayer life is just like, God, you know, you're the Lord of the universe. You created all this. You made this lake. You made the fish. I can't see what's going on down there, but you can. And you could just make that fish swim up there. And, and, and that's all I want. That's all I'm asking for. I'll never ask for anything again. Just one fish right now. Next time I go fishing, I'll, I, won't, I won't ask. Right? We, we, you are God. You love me. You know what I want. I do this when I write sermons. Like, God, you love this church. You love this church so much more. You know what they need. You know they need the words. Just... Let me finish this so I can not be stressed out. I can take a listen to lunch. I can go hang out with the guys tomorrow. Come on. We do this with big things too, though, right? Like think about when your kids are sick or your, your friends are sick or your parents are sick and, and we just feel this weight, right? Like, God, you hate suffering. As much as I hate to see them feeling this way, you hate it more and you are the God who is in control of everything. We've seen you heal. We've seen you care. We've seen you provide. And obviously, you know, there's nothing wrong with these desires. There's nothing wrong with praying, even for fish. There's nothing wrong with asking Jesus for help. And as we saw earlier, right, there's something deeply good about recognizing God's goodness and his power and coming before him in humility. But at the same time, there's a danger, right, that this is who Jesus becomes to us. Right? This is what we think of. This is the way we define his goodness and his grace. And ultimately, over time, our faith becomes weighed down by our own expectations and our own agendas. If someone were to ask us, hey, what do you really want from Jesus? What do you really want him to do for you? I think if a lot of us are honest, you know, and, you know just, just, just between us and God, the first thing that comes to mind is, is some version of control. I want Jesus to do this for me. I, I need him to do this. And look, this is just a dangerous way to live. This puts our faith on the edge of a cliff at, at all times because we're not far, right, from just disillusionment, blame, doubt, disappointment. If our faith is centered around our desires, then when things don't go our way, 
it's easy for it to fall apart. And so in this miracle, what Jesus is pointing to is something greater, right? A deeper type of faith, a deeper understanding of a God of provision, a God of miracles, a God of abundance, and a, a different way of thinking about what Jesus can give us. Let's keep reading verse 25. After Jesus kind of goes off on his own, he has this little encounter with the disciples. He, you know, does this little thing. He walks on water, and then the disciples can't find him. And in verse 25, they come to him. They find him on the other side of the lake, and they ask him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus is saying here, say, hey, listen, don't miss the point here, right? Like, don't get too caught up in being excited about, you know, the bread and the fish. Don't be too excited about just feeling satisfied because I gave you something right now, but be thinking about something deeper. What will satisfy you on the deepest, most permanent level? What you need isn't food. What you need isn't a king. What you need isn't fish or a good sermon or even health for your family and friends. What you need is real food, real sustenance. Let's keep reading. Verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Skip down to verse 47. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, if you haven't heard this, you know, most of us have heard Jesus say, I am the bread of life before. But when you think about what Jesus is saying here, it's pretty weird, right? Like later on, he's going to say, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Uh, the disciples, the crowds are confused. Like, what does he mean? We can't even eat pork, right? Like, we can't have pork chops. You want me to eat your flesh? And there is some debate about what Jesus is talking about here. Some people will argue or, or feel like this is a reference to the Lord's Supper, to kind of the symbolic eating of Jesus as we, you know, take the bread and, and the wine or juice. And that's possible. Maybe John has that in mind, and, and, and there's kind of pointing ahead to his death and resurrection. But when we think about what Jesus is saying in this moment to people who have no context for the Lord's Supper, who aren't thinking about some, you know, church practice a hundred years later, there's a, a very simple point that Jesus wants to get across. This sign points us to this deeper reality that Jesus isn't just the one who provides for our needs. Jesus is what we need. And this is the real point of the passage. This is what uh, the level Jesus wants us to get to, that when we think about this miracle, Jesus multiplying bread and fish, each person having more than enough, this group of 20,000 people completely satisfied, we need to recognize that it isn't about the bread and fish he produces. It's not about what Jesus can do for us. This is about who he is. Jesus isn't saying, hey, here's what I can give you. He's not even just saying, this is how much I love you. What he's saying is that this is what I 
am like. This is who I am. I am the bread itself. In the same sense that you need bread to satisfy your, your basic hunger this random afternoon, in the same sense that your ancestors needed that manna in the wilderness to literally survive, to literally sustain life, you need me as your true source of sustenance. There's nothing else you could find that will give you genuine life the way I can, my, my body, my flesh, my very person. And so what we need, what Jesus says we need, isn't more stuff. It's not for him to give us the things that we think we need. It's not for us to harness his power to, you know, get this or that. It's simply Jesus, the person. And so I think this miracle reminds us of another one of the great challenges of faith. On one hand, we have this kind of challenge of trying to control Jesus. But there's something else that this passage points us to, is the the danger of pursuing religious behavior and missing out on Jesus himself, that we pursue religion and we don't pursue Jesus. This is something you might call the idolatry of church or the idolatry of religion, right? We like the spiritual activity. We like the benefits of religion. We like to talk about Jesus and think about truth. But oftentimes we're not thinking about how am I consuming grabbing for and taking hold of and filling myself with Jesus himself. Now, I was thinking about this last week. You know, I had this, this message on my mind. I was thinking about this last week as we were, um, during our worship time here, during the first set of worship. And I got to be honest, I was just like really in it. I'm, like Matt and the team, they were just crushing it. It was two of my favorite songs. We did that song, Stand in Your Love. I love that song. That song just makes me want to dance, you know, like your kind of hips start to move a little bit. But I was just, I was just so connected. And then like second service came and I told second service, like, man, you guys, this is going to be awesome. Like, I'm just so glad we're doing this today. And then in the middle of that set, I just kind of had this thought, and this thought comes to me once in a while, is like, what is it that I love about this? Why was I so looking forward to second service to this experience again? What is it about this that's like making me feel so good? And, and I realized a big part of it is like it's because I love music. I, I love singing. I love singing with you all, right? That feeling of corporate worship as we all sing together and we feel that kind of flood of joy and emotion that comes when we worship as a body. And all those things are good, but the question that comes to my mind is, what do I love? Do I love the singing and the music and all that good stuff, or do I love just being in the presence of Jesus, his person? Do I feel like I'm actually with him, meeting with someone? Is this something that I do, or is this a person that I am with? And I just realized in that moment, and this is true of so many things, how easy it can be to miss Jesus in just a sea of activity and stuff. Uh, In his commentary on John, N.T. Wright tells this kind of hypothetical story. It's about this historian who's in a rush to finish his Ph.D., and he's got one last chapter to write. And so he kind of goes to this museum, this really nice art museum, to uh, look at the paintings on uh, a particular period of time and to understand the influence that they had. And so he 
goes to the, this gallery, and, and he's moving from painting to painting, and he's kind of taking notes everywhere. Right? He's looking at all the different details on the little plaques about the painting. Who was the painter? When was he born? Where did he live? Uh, what were his key paintings? Who were his influences? Who did he influence? And, and then, quickly as he can, goes on to the next gallery and kind of does this for a while. And at the end of all this, of course, he finishes his PhD. He gets, you know, kind of his job done. But ultimately, when you look at that experience, right, like what did he miss out on? He missed out on the art itself. Wright says at no point does he ever stand back and look at the paintings themselves and allow them to speak. I think this can happen really easily in church life. You know, we kind of become like Jesus PhDs, you know, we come and we learn and we get all this information or we, we do this activity and it's all good. But it can be easy to, to go through the whole process without ever just sitting quietly and allowing Jesus to speak to us and move us and fill us. When we think about feeding on Jesus, uh, here's what author Gary Burge says. Being fed by God is so simple that in a world congested with busyness, it's actually become hard to understand. Like the pursuit of joy, the more we run after it with strategies and plans, the more it seems to flee. It is not gained by ministry accomplishments, righteous efforts, or the intellectual mastery of the Bible. Being fed by God requires a conversion of thinking. Right? This, this deeper level, this new way of thinking about faith, a discovery that God is eager to give life and renewal to anyone who can listen in simplicity and piety. I'm both inspired and terrified by that quote because I'm not good at simplicity and piety. I'm good at activity. I'm good at learning. I'm good at doing stuff, but simplicity and piety, simply sitting with Jesus, the person, can be hard. And this passage ultimately is a temptation Right, to push past some of these temptations of false or, or, or religion that, that falls short. Sometimes we turn faith into just kind of hoping for good things from God. Sometimes we turn faith into a lot of spiritual and religious activity. But at the heart of it, what Jesus wants us to say is, see, is that we are called to simply let him be the bread of life. And that our attitude towards him should be to truly hunger for him. To, to grab at him the way we would grab for food when we're famished. To desire him the way we desire a, a good meal. And then as we come before him, to, to be filled up and sustained by him, to sit with him, allow him to speak and fill us. And Jesus says, of all the things that you could do in your life, of all the things that I could possibly give you, of all the things that I could do with all my power and love and all of my infinite creativity, you know what the best thing I could give you is? It's just more of me. Time with me in my presence, listening to me. And that to see Jesus as the bread of life is to understand that this is what we need more than anything else for, for true satisfaction. And, you know, this is something that, that John is going to hit us over with time after time after time again in his gospel. It's something he does not want us to miss. Later in John 15, he's going to say this, I am the true vine, 
abide in me, right? This simple command, this simple invitation, like just remain in me. Be with me. Be connected to me. Receive your sustenance and life from me, from my presence, both physical and spiritual. And it's really simple, but it's easy to miss. And I think the further we stray from it, the harder it is to feel this experience of what God wants to give us, this eternal life, right? Like not, not just then, not just for the future, but now this life, this fullness, this abundance. And so the question that we want to walk away with this morning is, is really simple. Do, do I know what I really need? Like more than anything else, that what I really need from this life what I really need from, from church, what I really need from, from community, what do I need more than anything else? Is it, is it Jesus? And is that something that's reflected in, in how I live? In the busyness of my life, do I pursue this bread over all the other things that the world offers? Am I hungering for his presence and all the spiritual practices that I'm participating in? And really, as we kind of wrap up this message and wrap up our passage, this is, I think, the question that Jesus ends with. Uh, after all this teaching and miracle, bread of life, the disciples are like, Dude, Jesus, this is, this is hard. This is quite literally hard to swallow. They don't fully understand everything. And so Jesus asks them, are you going to leave too? Are you going to leave like, like all these other crowds have? Are, are you going to leave or are you going to follow me? And Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? Jesus, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And this is the heart of discipleship. You know, we know that Peter doesn't have everything figured out, but man, he gets this right. And where else would we go? Who else could offer us anything better than what you can? No one but you gives true life. And so my prayer for you this morning is, you know, we have this image. All of us can pull it up in our minds. Jesus feeding the 5,000, whatever it looks like in your mind. This picture of abundance, these 12 leftover baskets. That when you think about this picture of abundance and fullness, you realize that that is what God wants to give me today. And the way I find it is by pursuing more of Jesus. That nothing else replaces Jesus, the bread of life, as we seek him out in stillness and quietness and piety. Let's pray together.